0: Okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to another United States Studies Center uh, webinar. Uh, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm professor of political science and CEO of the United States Study Center. And um, um, I think it's important to recognise, even though we're doing this online, that um, if this were an in-person event, there would be an acknowledgement of country at the start of the event and. The centre is part of the university, uh, which stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Aura Nation, and, and indeed my home, uh, where I'm coming to you from today, uh, is also uh, in, in that part of Sydney, uh, on the traditional lands of the Gadigal, part of the Aura Nation, and we pay our respects to uh, elders past, present and emerging. Um, look, I'm so thrilled about today's uh, guest. It's Cameron Stewart, uh, who many of you will recognize that name. Cameron is the Australian's correspondent uh, in Washington, D.C., um, which, um, what a gig, <laughs> is I think the first thing to say. Um, and Cameron's been there pretty much for the duration of, of the Trump presidency. But boy, oh boy, hasn't that posting gotten interesting in the last couple of months or so um i last saw cameron we were both in a gymnasium in iowa at a pete Buttigieg <laughs> rally and we we texted one another um that was about as as uh, as intimate as that last uh, get together got um but it's but it's great to be with cameron today this is the 2020 election that that cameron's going to be covering is his eighth u.s presidential election since he started with the australian and, and Cameron's had a wide brief over his time at the Oz, uh, covering foreign affairs, defence and national security. Really important prerequisites, I think, for, if you're going to go cover um, Washington for, for an Australian audience. Uh, Cameron uh, writes speeches, uh, of course, for the Weekend Australian magazine and uh, appears regularly on Sky News. Uh, Cameron, great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Simon.
0: Great to be here. Oh, that's great. Hey, look. I thought a place to start is just with the fact that you are on the ground um, and we'll get to the politics and all the rest of it in just a moment, but I just thought if you could give us a sense of life in Washington, DC, life on the Eastern seaboard of the United States uh, in this extraordinary moment, um, where the, the numbers associated with the pandemic uh, both in cases and fatalities, are just so far outstripping the Australian experience. I'm wondering if you could just sort of give us a, some of that human uh, you know, reaction to it before we jump into the, the politics and whatnot.
1: Sure, Simon. In fact, interestingly, it, it was only really just over a month ago that I was um, uh, following, I think I went to Bernie Sanders' last rally, in, uh, in Michigan uh, following on the Michigan campaign trail uh, was about the um, ooh, 11th of March I think roughly and everyone started talking about coronavirus just so much more so much more but you were still following the, the actual uh, rallies themselves and the actual um, primary contest between Biden and Sanders and then all of a sudden it just became very very serious and um, and the the Primary happened, I flew back on a plane. I remember there were 13 people on a plane here, in, on the one plane. Three of them had masks on, coughing all over the place. You really got a sense something had changed here. And so I came back to Washington. And over that next week, uh, I saw something which was just extraordinary. In 30 years of journalism, I'd never seen a, a town, a, the, the capital of of, of the superpower of the world empty like that. I mean, Washington became a ghost town. You know, I went down to the mall, walked through the Lincoln Center and the Lincoln Memorial and the uh, and the Washington Memorial, all around the place. There was no one there. It was empty. The reflecting pool, the famous reflecting pool, was empty, I actually walked in it, <laughs> up, up and looking around the place. And it was just remarkable. And then in my, um, uh, House, uh, which is just just about sort of 15 minutes out of um, the centre of Washington, if you like, much more suburban place, Mm -hmm. people just started locking down. And so part of the reason for the seriousness of it, I know it's been very serious in Australia too, of course, as well, but really people saw the death toll start to spiral here. And I guess uh, myself, along with many other people living in America, saw the real failures early on. Of trying to keep a tab of it from a government point of view, from the White House down to the agencies. Uh, and also, I guess Americans' wonderful libertarian spirit, you know, which is one of the great strengths of the country, turns against it in a time of pandemic. Uh, and so the actual living here now, obviously, we're locked down here in DC, um, as is much of the country. Uh, and it's just a very strange situation. I mean, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough, we have a, we have a nice house in a nice neighbourhood, but literally only about a few kilometres up the road, uh, we have a hospital that is struggling to cope with the amount of people coming in on stretches and the amount of bodies. I mean, you know, uh, the Washington region is quite a hot spot these days, it really has in the last week or two. So it's just a really strange existence because you're living... Um, a relatively comfortable existence in one sense you know working from home although that's very frustrating working from home uh with your family but you know that you are just that far away from something going wrong and being sucked into a healthcare system in america that is being overwhelmed by infections and deaths that is nothing like australia a very good uh, quick example is uh, in washington dc as you know it's like um, canberra it's like the act it's like a 16 kilometer by 16 kilometer square okay they have almost three times the amount of deaths in that square than all of Australia. Right. So I think that's a very good small illustration of exactly uh, the sort of scale of stuff that looking they're looking at here in America and, and of course why it's such a massive problem.
0: Yeah, um, it's um, Cameron, I just wonder, I mean, it's tough. You know, every Australian can tell you they've got a lockdown story, uh, how it's working here. Um, my impressionistic sense is that um, it's been rather uneven in the United States that if you wanted to fly to Los Angeles, you could go out to and do that pretty, pretty easily. If you wanted to catch, I don't know if the trains are still running up to New York. And, but I think there's been a, I think both from the government and in the Australian people, I think there's been a much more sort of embrace or, you know, both, both formal and informal ways. Am I, not getting it about America what's your sense of how rigorously lockdown has been sort of both from the top but but you mentioned the bottom up the libertarian spirit just could you give us a quick sense of that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Simon. I mean, America, it really, at a time like this, you realize it really is the United States of America. It really hasn't got a, a powerful federal system. Every, every state goes its own way. But also, um, the the geographic position of the states is so different. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, uh, in Wyoming, six people have died. In New York State, 14,000 have died. I mean, it's just so. It's so uneven. The patchwork is uneven. The attitudes are uneven and everything. The airlines are still flying, unlike a lot of parts of Australia. That's partly because the government has funded them and ordered them to fly. So they're flying with five passengers. That's extraordinary. you want to fly to Los Angeles, you'll share the plane with five passengers. So you you know you have a really uneven situation, and of course that makes. And of course, because the state federal situation is so much different to Australia, Australia is a much easier country to to rule in a federal sense. Morrison can say, you know, we will do this. You know, Trump can say we will do this. He can thump his chest like Tarzan, but the state governors are not going to necessarily listen. And you add that to the variety of the of the sort of geographical circumstances in the country, and you realise that such a sort of disparate response if you like it really is very very different depending on where you are
0: right hey Cameron I thanks for sharing those observations I thought that some of that context um is really important to get what I want to do though now is um good host that I am uh I'm going to tease (laughs) share on the screen if I can um uh I hope we're all seeing that now um are we seeing that um I don't know if that's up on your screen, Cameron, but um, yes, it is your big splash in the, in the Oz today um, by you uh, under the banner, um, Trump's Coronavirus Endgame. end game. Uh, the president has his reelection in mind and every decision he makes during the battle against COVID-19 um, um, you're singing <laughs> our song. Um, that's been very much Cameron. I think, Sort of the at a very high level, I think the 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 frame we've been putting around at the U.S. Study Center. But I'm wondering if you could perhaps just this is a, you know this is our diving off point into the politics now, Cameron. Um, um, walk us through sort of the argument and and some of the evidence you're seeing that you talked about in the article for this for this claim about uh, you know just how preeminent re-election is in the president's mind as as he. Thinks about the battle against COVID. Sure.
1: Um, well, Simon, there's a couple of very interesting points in this, uh, including some that I don't even go into in the article itself. But I think the the bottom line here is that the the Donald Trump's strongest case for re-election by a long way in November was until five weeks ago the U.S. economy. You know, there's never been a a president who has not been elected to a second term with Unemployment that low, and with an economy that strong, and so despite all of Trump's incredibly maverick uh, style of leadership, you know, love him or hate him, whatever, Americans have tended to be quite consistent on this matter. That the, the economy is going pretty well, you know what? Regardless of whatever warts they think the president's got, they'll re-elect him. Um, and so that was his big thing. And so I think the the great, I mean, the great. Uh, a tragedy in the sense for Donald Trump politically is that that economy is now gone in a spectacular sense. It is suddenly gone. And his desire, I think, probably uh, naturally as a politician, was to hold on to that as much as possible. I think that contributed, it certainly is not an excuse, but I think it contributed to him. Uh, playing down the virus at the early stages, the last thing he wanted to do was listen to people like scientists who were saying, "Close the place down for God's sake, Cl- stop airlines flying from Europe, stop this and that." It was the word, It was anathema to Donald Trump to to think that would be the case. Um, and so, that's what's happened. And you see his natural instinct all the way through this um, virus crisis has been to start the economy as quickly as possible. That's, that's his go to sort of um, default, if you like. I mean, you recall how reluctant he was to close it up. Originally, you call that very optimistic concept of, of opening everything by Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, and even uh, beyond that, when when really the death count started to mount to a point that that clearly he couldn't in any way, it um, wasn't ignoring it. I mean, it you know, was a really massive thing. Even then, he had tension with uh, with Anthony Fauci, the, the head of the infectious diseases. You could see it's palpable on the screen every day how much um, Trump was wanting to do it. And now, even in his guidelines, he's, 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 um, he's booted the responsibility to the governors, which I think is actually a good idea because, as I said, it's, the country is is in very different situation depending on, on where the state is. But even then, he's been encouraging. So that's certainly been his default mechanism because... Um, Whatever economic recovery there is be, between now and November, uh, Trump will take credit for, understandably. I mean, he, he, will, he will be rewarded for whatever uh, credit there is. By punting the responsibility to the governors, if, um, if things go bad, if they reopen too early, as Georgia might, for example, um, if they reopen too early and there's a return of infection, a second wave of infection just before the November election, you can imagine how that bad that would be for Trump. He can now have the cover of saying, look, you know, I gave the responsibility to the governors. It, it, it's been their fault. So there's a lot, of, um, a lot of politics that goes into it, Simon. And it's not just that. Uh, it's a very strange um, accident of circumstance, if you like, that the virus affects Democrats more than Republicans. For the simple reason that um, the cities in America are Democrat cities. Democrats are are, um, concentrated in America in the big cities. Republicans are much more regional and much more uh, rural. And the virus simply spreads quicker in cities. And so that's why you've got, of course, New York City as the epicenter. Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit. You know, these are all Democrat strongholds. Uh, Donald Trump... um, you know, so so he can he can pick fights in a way with those governors in a way that he doesn't want to do so in Republican states. There's a lot of politics that, that is overlaid by it.
0: Yeah. Um, as one one observation a lot of us have had at the study centre is that, you know, you look around the world at the moment, Morrison just got through an election, you know, about a year ago. Um, Boris Johnson, Pierre Trudeau, um, um uh, Justin Trudeau, sorry, <laughs> that didn't sound quite right. Um, 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 but all of them, in, you know, at least in sort of the sphere, there, if you will, um, Trump is, you know, uh, is facing, I guess, Adern is, is sort of the other one in New Zealand has got an election coming up. But, but in, you know, in the big Anglosphere countries, um, Trump is unique in this, that he's, there, he's less than 200 days away now. From, from an election.
1: And, and, you know, not only is Trump unique, but the whole circumstance is unique. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because you have a, a president, I, it's very hard to find a president as unique as Trump in the modern era. Yep. Um, it's, you know, uh, you, you, you cannot find a circumstance like this pandemic in the modern era. You know, uh, you, you, so the combination of the two, is unbelievable. I mean, you know, all, all of the time that we all spent um, watching, reading, in my case, reporting on Donald Trump from the, you know, the fire and fury days, the um, Robert Mueller, uh, James Comey, you know, I mean, I mean, who remembers impeachment? God, impeachment was only five months ago. I mean, I mean, I, I feel as a reporter, I feel like I live my life in dog years, seven years for every year for, for covering the, the Trump administration. I mean, it's fabulous, uh, but uh, it's, Yeah, everything that's happened, extraordinary historical things in the context of American history in the last three years, all of it probably won't matter a jot compared to how Trump manages this pandemic. Yeah. This is, you know.
0: Look, Cameron, I guess it's it's an implication of your article. Um, But again, it's something we're testing just as a proposition around the Senate. Like, we get asked this every day, that Trump's election and, and, and the judgment of history, it, even beyond just the election, just turns on his handling of this calamity. Um, it's very hard to imagine business as usual come September, October, that people are back at work and we're talking about, wow, that was a strange six months. Um, um, and that everything, um, his, you know, the measure of success of an American president is being reelected um are you a one-termer or are you a two-termer um, um and and then moreover just the this appalling death toll sort of raises sort of the historical moral stakes here as well um everything it would seem to me so much turns you know rather than it being a referendum on the economy it's now going to be a referendum on his handling of this pandemic i and i'm just saying that out loud cameron you know Testing with you, perhaps, the validity of that characterization of, of what we're about to see over the next six months.
1: I, I think that's a very accurate one. I mean, this is, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, not surprisingly, um, the country is utterly, uh, utterly obsessed with the pandemic. I mean, there's almost no other news. In fact, virtually with the election, even then, it's struggling, you know, with with Biden and Sanders, I'm sure we'll talk about then a bit, a bit later on. But, I mean, the bottom line is that that's really, that's, that's page eight. You know, everything else, the first, eight, first seven pages are the pandemic. I mean, this it just is swallowing every bit of oxygen here in this country. And so it's, it's impossible to imagine that Trump is not going to be entirely judged on this basis. But the great mystery here, I think, Simon, is, is how will voters respond to this? Because we haven't had this sort of thing before. I mean, OK, 60,000 Americans might die. Now, um, Trump will argue that's a great victory, even though it's terrible toll. It's it's a great victory because it could have been much higher had the government not not acted and done X, Y, and Z. Okay. Right. Uh and you know, I mean you can argue the validity of that one way or the other, but the bottom line is no one knows how voters will react to that sort of um pandemic. We've just never seen it before. Uh, you know, and, and so that's really a major thing. And the second thing is is how will they react to a level of unemployment that's not been seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s? Now, the bottom line here again is that that will be a fact of when we go into November, any economic recovery will be very, very small at best. And so that will simply be a fact of this election. But Trump correctly says it's not my fault. Um, you know, so it's not his fault. So do they think to themselves, okay, uh this guy ruled over quite a strong economy for three years. So therefore we want a strong economy again. so we'll reelect him because he's the most likely guy to get it back going when the pandemic has gone. That's quite a possibility. Or will they just say, Jesus Christ, yeah. all this unemployment, this chaos, this death, you know what? And Oh my God, give me someone else. Um, you know, I, think, I think they're the sort of balances that American voters will be thinking about.
0: Is, is I want to get into, uh, sort of the, the, the the political conduct, if you will, the political management of the pandemic by Trump, it's, you know, you said earlier, he's such a distinctive president. Um, but you know, the performance from the podium, um, in the, in the white house briefing room that Americans are getting every night, basically literally seven days a week, most weeks, um, um, is that helping I talk about that for Australians who may not understand, you know, in, in the level of detail that you and I perhaps do what Trump is doing uh, at, with those podium appearances, but are they, are they helping um, the case, the cause for, from Trump's perspective, in your view?
1: Yeah, it's, that's a difficult question to answer. So, so look, for um, people in Australia who, who aren't watching, uh, who, who have, have a life that they don't watch entirely two hours of a press conference every day, which is pretty much what it often is, um, Donald Trump gets up with the Coronavirus Task Force and uh, every, every day he has a, a different cast of characters behind him. Um, and talks about the latest in the developments. And um, some parts of it are very, very good. Some parts of it are very helpful. The scientists, particularly Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, give very good and informative comments about what's happening. Um, Trump can be quite good when he's on his uh, cue, but then he does go off cube. And then it just becomes um, Donald Trump, which, of course, is a strength and a weakness, depending on your perspective. But, you know, he um, chides the media and settles scores and does a whole bunch of other stuff uh, and and sort of um, talks about how well he's done with the management of the, uh, of the whole pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, the people who don't like Donald Trump think it's really disgraceful and, and egotistical and, and, you know, terribly damaging for a, a leader to do that. The people who like him say, well, you know, good on him. He's telling it as he's calling out media that he thinks should be called out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What is the ultimate impact of this? It's a great question because the polls show that Trump is, uh, most Americans are not happy with his performance, but not by a long way. Uh, by about, you know, 46% to 51%, if you like. 46% approve of the way he's handling and about 51% don't. That's not entirely inconsistent with his general um, uh, approval ratings over his presidency. So, you know, what you're seeing with the pandemic so far is, yes, his ratings have gone down a little bit, uh, and certainly Americans are not flocking to him at all. But at the same time, you're not seeing a sort of... Uh, oh my god he's a disaster at all in fact so i think he's very much still got the chance to to improve or otherwise uh with the way americans see his handling this this pandemic
0: yeah um a number i track very closely um is the approval rating and my sense of it is um you know he got he got a well, number one, Trump's approval rating has just tracked in this very narrow band his entire presidency, number one, uh, in, you know, in, the, in the low 40s, basically. Um, ticked up to about 45, uh, but it's sort of settled back down to about 42. Now those movements seem minuscule, um, um, and, and they are. Um, when you, you know, on the one hand, there hasn't been a huge bump a so-called rally round the flag effect for Trump that, that often accompanies presidents facing dire circumstances. I think 9-11 perhaps being the kind of the most uh, spectacular example of that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, despite the fact that the United States has got, you know, over 40,000 fatalities uh, from, from, from this pandemic. I mean, I think, you know, the other surprise is that his number is still about 42, 43%. Um, You'd like that to be stronger going into a re-election year, but 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 Cameron, I think you know you you make a great point. It's I think it's tempting for people that aren't particularly predisposed to like Trump to say, "Oh, this is it. Surely he's finished politically come November." But I think any reasonable survey of the political terrain here suggests that's that would be a rash conclusion. Um, I'd suggest and and. I just think, can we just have a quick chat about that, Cameron? Your sense of, you you alluded to it earlier, the pandemic is falling unevenly across the country. Um, where do you see this cashing out? perhaps geographically? Um, how, how is this playing, frankly, in the States? And And your article opens up with Buffalo, New York. New York State, of course, is pretty much a lock for a Democrat, but Buffalo is emblematic of in my view, at least, and I imagine yours, that's why you opened the article with it. Um, c- cities like it across the Midwest, across the Rust Belt. And, and say a little bit, if you can, about how the difference between the way Democrats in New York and big cities might be reacting to this and making judgments about Trump versus the way it's, it may be playing out there in, in those parts of the country that will be absolutely pivotal come November.
1: Yeah, I think it's very different um, out there in the in the regional and rural areas. Certainly, I mean, you might recall last week the very first protest that, that came to reopen the state so It was in uh, in Lansing, in Michigan. Um, you know, in rural Michigan now, and they're saying, well, you know, out, out here in rural Michigan, the the coronavirus virus um, statistics are very very low. You know, this is outrageous. We're being hit by statewide rules. Uh, which, of course, are mainly um, aimed at Detroit, which is um, the biggest city in Michigan where the rates are really, really terrible. So you have this incredible um, dichotomy even within states. And so what what you're seeing in in regional and rural America is you're seeing rates uh, of the virus that are far less. You're seeing that's the home of small business in America. That's the home of people who obviously um, struggled a lot prior to the last election. They're the people, a lot of them. Who are the so-called forgotten people that Donald Trump claimed? You know, by the silent voters that voted for him, um, and so they're just saying, look, I don't, we don't want to be bound by the by the, the the problems in the big city. We don't want government. They're very libertarian people. We don't want government to tell us what to do. We, we want to choose to, to live our own kind of lives. And so they're choosing the economy, if you like, over the virus because it's an easier choice for them and a more understandable one. And I think often in America, the media especially here, judges people by the big cities. You know, if you're living in New York City, for example, or even, frankly, any big city, Detroit, um, Chicago, yeah. the, the notion of, of, of stopping social distancing and and easing restrictions. It's just like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Of course you wouldn't do that. But that's not most of America. Most of America is out there, is out there in the in the regional and rural areas and they see a very different America and they see these restrictions coming along and they're just they want to go. And you can see why Donald Trump is very much sympathetic to that. They're the people to a large degree, who put him in the White House? They're the ones who he promised in 2016 he would improve their economic circumstance, you know. And so they're out in the streets protesting. And uh, you know, he, what is he going to? Is he going to support the Democrat cities, the big cities, so is he, or is he going to support his Republican supporters out there? Now, look, you know, he's, he's not being reckless in in one way. He is saying that you should do it safely, but he's certainly pushing the envelope because. You know, you've got people, I don't know if you saw in the last 24 hours, what the governor of Victoria, a guy called Brian Kemp, oh, sorry, Victoria, sorry, Georgia, a guy called Brian Kemp has done is quite remarkable. Um, he has come out and he has opened, uh, he's, he said that you can open in dining in restaurants, you can open movie theatres, you can open nail and, and hair salons, you can even open tattoo parlours, a whole range of normal life he has ordered to be opened in Georgia. But he hasn't done it uh, at a point when the coronavirus is is decreasing in that state. He's actually done it when there's a high rate of infections, 575 new infections on the very same day he made that an announcement, 18 new deaths. You know, and so you're looking at a state like Georgia now and you're like, wow, OK, they're actually doing this even faster than Donald Trump's guidelines suggest. What will happen then? So it's going to be... It's a really amazing, uh, you know, experiment that's happening with Georgia. And that really reflects the moods of a lot of these more regional uh, and poorer states. That, that's,
0: that's, that's really great context, Cameron. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I, I Just while you were talking, I, I've had on screen just a picture of some of these protests. And, and you know, they, I, li- I like your form of words, pushing the envelope, you know, those tweets from... Trump to, to liberate Minnesota and, and liberate uh, Michigan, um, liberate Virginia. I think were the three that he went after on on Twitter. But um, all Democrat governors. Yeah, right. Well said. Hey, let's talk real quickly about two things I want to get to before we open it up and start sort of working with, with the many people that have joined us online today through their questions. But um, let's talk about the Dems. Uh, let's drop down to page seven. <laughs> um, I thought that was well said. Um, um, where are we? There we are. Um, uh, hopefully on screen you're seeing now. Um, there's a picture of a uh, wow. Hasn't Barack Obama aged? Um, um, but but Biden as well. And Cameron, you had an interesting piece. Oh, it's, I'm going to say again, dog years. I'm going to say it's about two weeks ago now. You know the way that the virus has a effectively terminated the Democratic primary race, and and now the presumptive nominee is is Biden. But you were you had a sort of some analysis suggesting that there's all this pent up. Demand for a tilt to the left, you know, from the Sanders crew inside the Democratic Party and that Biden is going to have sort of a delicate sort of act of political management um, handling that it may not be, although he's got the nomination, you know, there's still some very much some unfinished business there inside the Democratic Party.
1: Yes, definitely, Simon. Uh, it's really interesting. I think the fact that um, Bernie Sanders, of course, um, finally pulled out just a couple of weeks ago, um, after staying in the race uh, at least three weeks longer than he needed to because it was quite, quite clear he'd never get the delegates to, to be the nominee, um, what it turns out was happening was Sanders' people were uh, talking to Biden's people and trying to strike a deal um, whereby they'd say, look, going Bernie will drop out and give you his support. Uh, so long as you, you you tilt to the left, you take some of his policies, or at least certainly the the tone of some of his policies. Uh, and you know we uh, we will the Sanders Sanders will be a player on your team, unlike in 2016 when you recall he fought Hillary Clinton all the way to the convention when he didn't have the the, the numbers. Um, and so immediately you saw that that actually happened. Uh, are you still are you still there, Simon? Yep, yep, I'm with you okay. No, sorry. I went out for a second. Yeah. So um, so immediately saw that happened. Uh, Biden said, yes, I'll listen to you. I hear you. Biden clearly wants Bernie Sanders supporters. It's a young army of young people. Not, they don't always go to the polls on the numbers they, they're supposed to, as far as Sanders goes. But the bottom line is that, that it's really important to Biden to get those voters. And so he is sort of tilted slightly to the left. He's taken uh, some of the um, the elements of, of Sanders' policies on things like student loan, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, so you'll see Joe Biden going to the polls in November with a more progressive agenda than any Democrat candidate we've seen in a long time. This is Joe Biden, the, 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 the moderate. Yeah, right. um, so in a way, Sanders has pushed him to the left. And I thought if you, if you have a look at, if any of our you know, um, listeners here, have a look at uh, Barack Obama's 12-minute um, video Right. endorsing Biden. It's quite interesting. He says a couple of things about Bernie Sanders that are very, very warm. He's an American, original, amazing guy. He's changed the landscape. You know, I mean, this is all part of Obama also reaching out to Sanders and saying, let's grab that left-wing progressive group of Democrats that's kind of pissed off that that, that Biden, the old man moderate, the old man white guy moderate, has got the, got the thing. So there's that sort of tension. Uh, in the Democrats, where Biden has got to try and coalesce them all together and go and take on Trump. Now, Trump, of course, straight away is aware of this leftward tilt. And of course, he's been, he's been having you know, fun, especially his, um, his campaign team have been tweeting against uh, Biden saying, look, you know, he's, a, he's a lefty socialist and he's just taking up Sanders' position. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Biden positions himself in the coming months to uh, somehow get Bernie Sanders supporters on the left without being portrayed successfully by Trump as some sort of socialist.
0: Sure, hey, um, and that leads me to sort of the last question from me for the morning, um, Cam, and, and that is um, I noticed um, that in part of the early um, attack ads if you were coming out of the Trump campaign against Biden there's an ad suggesting Biden soft on China um has got form there with hunter biden being on the board and and you know it was a it was a you know it was a classic hit ad um the the rapidly chopped up footage and guilt by association and a bit of selective quoting but you know that's all all fair and love and war um when it comes to that sort of thing but what was interesting was to see biden fire back pretty quickly and say no he's the bloke that's um trump is the is the is the person that's got a china problem um and 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 by the way exhibit a would be the, the pandemic and 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 so i'm just again there's a lot of us here at the study center and our you know people uh, a lot of our audience and stakeholders keen interest in us china so it, it might even be an understatement um, um But the idea that that is getting drawn in, A, politicized through the pandemic, but in the context of the election, it's almost like this perfect storm for disrupting what has been over the first three years of the Trump presidency, a rare moment of partisan sort of agreement, at least inside Washington that, yeah, China's a problem, we've got to do something about it. You throw on the pandemic, you throw on the trumpet with his back to the wall with the election and, and, it, nothing sacred anymore like we'll, we'll go after attack one another on, on again on what has been a rare moment i think under trump presidency of partisan agreement just wondering your, your take on that I, again particularly i think because you're in dc and, and you've been exposed i think to that, that very live policy debate uh, is... yeah well
1: it's been it's been an amazing in fact uh, the three years i've been here it's been quite extraordinary uh, to see how um the friends of china in washington have shrunk to the point they do not exist uh when i came in fact australia actually played quite a role in that of course early on as well because america really looked to to australia's policies in relation to uh huawei and foreign interference etc uh and it actually played a disproportionate um weight if you like in in framing their policies but now of course it's gone a a, a big step further really interesting and, and it's it's playing out and it's going to be quite important i think it's a very good um, point you, you make simon with with Trump and China uh, Trump clearly made that big mistake that tweet which he'll never he 'll never quite live down where he said you know china's uh, china 's been great been very transparent doing a great job with the virus et etc et etc but look since then um, Trump has really almost turned China to his advantage you know he's really he's made, he, he's made uh, he's attacked China very heavily in part of course because he 's trying to blame it all on China rather than uh, talk about that, that crucial period from late February to mid-March when he re- downplayed the virus here. And clearly that did not help the preventing the, the rapid spread in America. But the bottom line is, of course, he's got some very valid points about China and covering up and not reporting, et cetera, et cetera. And he's pushed them very, very hard. And I think Biden made a mistake early on by saying it was a xenophobic for trump to call it the wuhan flu and the china virus etc etc because i think the mood of americans is yep. really quite hostile to china in fact there was a pew research study i don't know if you saw it it's 48 hours ago yeah. and it said america americans have the most hostile view of china since or oh, forgotten but it's a long time yep. like like well over a decade or two yep. uh you know so i mean the americans see china as, as a as a tariff um a tariff uh, opposition aggressor, if you like, even though you know, you've got versus tat. Um, then now they're seeing uh, China's virus coming across, coming from China, killing enormous amounts of Americans, Donald Trump attacking China. I think actually that China will be a major, major point in this campaign. And Donald Trump is certainly um, shaping up to use it as a, a real um, weapon in his armory. And I think it's going to be a real challenge to the Democrats and to Biden to decide exactly what their position is on China. Certainly, they are relatively hostile, but they they risk politically, I think, being seen as too soft on China uh, yeah. if, 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 if they don't come across fairly hard. And I think that could be politically quite damaging for Biden. I think Trump would really exploit
0: that. Yeah. No, it's looks like we're going from a world in which there was no constituency for China and Washington to that being a much more national sort of phenomenon. Um, There are, you know, uh, uh, Asian Americans only constitute 3% of the population. Uh, It's highly concentrated in in Northern California too. Um, You know, my point being, there's probably not a lot of downside um, Mm. to go hard. Um, and, and then of course, I think, you know, conversation for another day, foreign policy implications of that and knock on effects for Australia and and whatnot, but let's keep what I'd like to do now is, um, just turn to, we, you know, as you know, um, people, um, signing up for the webinar, I'm just looking at some of the excellent questions we've got. Um, I'd like to start with, we've sort of dealt with this, um, Cameron, but I think let's just get a quick bottom line assessment, Albert Vu. Um, uh, Asked, I think. Bottom line: uh, the pandemic does it help or hurt Trump's chances of re-election? We can do this and maybe that, but plus or minus, where are we, Cameron? What do you reckon?
1: Uh, you know, thanks for the easy question. There, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my sense, just to give you the context here. Um, and of course, you know, I'm I'm, I'm just an observer. I, I, I'm no expert. I've just, I mean, I've been living and breathing, but doesn't does not make me an expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, i My sense before the pandemic was that Trump was um, about sixty forty chance to be reelected if not even sixty five thirty five uh, just because the economy was so strong, and that uh, all of the, um, the the controversies from impeachment to x to y to Z never really changed the the calculus. And so the impression I was getting was, look, you know, even though a lot of Americans don't particularly like him, and I've met a lot of Americans in my travels. Before the pandemic, I travel a lot through Trump country, through the Midwest and small towns, coffee shops, um, bars on the street, talking to people. And a lot of people, a lot of his supporters do not like him. Yep. but they love the fact i 've got a. they said i 've got a job i 've got food on the table hey that 'll do i 'll vote for him i mean you know whereas in the cities there 's much more of a sense of look how could you vote for how could you vote for a person like that you know uh, and so it 's a very different um, uh, different analysis but so I thought Trump was definitely the, the favorite before the pandemic now i 'm not so sure I think that Biden has a better chance than he did before the pandemic, but i wouldn 't put it any stronger than that. Uh, The bottom line is that Trump is here, and this is a a thing that's important to mention. Um, From the perspective here, Trump is on every night, prime time for an hour and a half on American television. And it goes, it rates like, it rates its socks off, as he'll tell you, if you ask him. Uh, You know, millions and millions, more than The Bachelor, he says. Um, Joe Biden is stuck in his basement of his home in Wilmington, Delaware you know, he can't go out for safety reasons, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's just a video face and it's fine. He, he puts himself out there and he makes a very coherent argument, but gee, if you're talking about who is visibly present in America right now, it is just not even close. And so that, that will work to Trump's advantage.
0: Right. And yeah, both of them are off the road. Um, whereas Trump's got that, as they say, the bully pulpit, can't do the mega rallies and the airport hangars, uh, the MAGA rallies, but, um, it's it's compelling viewing and um c-span by the way for australian viewers um c-span carries these um uh end-to-end um just the raw footage straight from and it's um remarkable as i is, is as much as i'll say um um i'm just scrolling through these questions here there are so many great ones um um Look, Geraldine Duke. I think we, we ask a great question. Thank you for being with us, Geraldine. That's terrific. Um, instead of the somewhat clunky Trumps playing to his base, what particular U.S. zones should Australian observers be watching closely? And I think what I think that's states or regions or or demographic groups. I think we've sort of answered that to some extent. But but you know, I think um, Cameron. I think we could both rattle off what are your five or six most important states come? come? Uh,
1: Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Florida, are the, uh, you know, the, the four key states. And pretty much, they, they will be, the election will almost certainly be decided in those states. And if, if, if the politicians can actually, if the candidates can actually get to travel in those states, which is far from certain, yeah. uh, that they're the places that they will spend most of their time.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, it's, it's odd that Ohio um, may not be the pivotal state it's been in every, it's gone with the winner in every election since 1964. John Kennedy in 1960 was the last one, but there's just enough population in Florida. D- Democratic friends, uh, Cameron, are talking up um, Arizona as maybe one for them. Mm. Um, but I agree, it, it's going to come down. To those states, and I think the other thing that we all need to be prepared for is I don't see a scenario in which Trump wins the popular vote, um, but that's not how the presidency is decided, as twenty sixteen taught us. Um, Trump's path back to power um, runs kind of through running the playing the same gambit that he that he was able to pull off in sixteen, losing the popular vote, mm. but but winning just enough vote to get him over the line in just enough states. Um, and and I think everything has to be, you know, as your article was sort of foreshadowing, kind of has to be passed through through that.
1: Yeah, and, and I think he has some problems there uh, too, Simon. I mean, in, uh, he's he's up against um, Joe Biden. Joe Biden was born in Scranton, a rough town in uh, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, he speaks to a lot of the Midwest. He's got very good ratings in the Midwest. I mean, this is why the Democrats would have been crazy to choose Sanders over over Biden, in my opinion, because Biden resonates in the places that the Democrats need to resonate to win this uh, election. In Michigan, um, uh, recently, um, Trump was trailing Biden head-on-head by double figures. You know, I, I mean, and in Michigan, Trump's picking a fight with the Democrat governor there, and there's a huge death toll there you know, and, and the economy's crashed. I mean, you know, you, you scratch your head and you think, well, is Trump going to win Michigan this time? I mean, it's, it's as, as we say, so many unknowns. But uh, the, in those four key states, uh, I think that, you know, Joe Biden will be quite a solid opponent.
0: Yeah, no, and I agree with the analysis too. Um, he was, to some extent, I think, the logical choice. Um, took them a while to get there. Hey, um, great question from Penelope Nelson, who asks, um, Again, names that Australians are starting to hear more of over the last couple of days. Andrew Cuomo uh, and de Blasio, how how are they coming out of this, is Penelope's uh, uh, question.
1: Well, Penelope, de Blasio would be lucky to come out of it well, because he was the guy who literally only, well, I think it was uh, the 6th of March or something, was saying, go and eat and drink. You see, go and eat and drink with your friends. Don't stop doing anything that you'd normally do, because the virus is not shared through food or drink. There's a quite little haunting till, till the end of his days. So I'm not sure he'll come out so well. Cuomo certainly comes out very well. I mean, if any of you have seen his, his press conferences, daily ones, they're, they're quite compelling as well. And they're very different to the White House press conferences in the sense that Cuomo really just says it as it is. You know, he's not, he, he's just saying, um, uh, he, he's basically just saying, this is the death toll. This is our problems. We haven't got enough ventilators, masks, that's the fact, that's a trajectory, boom, 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 boom. It's quite sort of grim, but at the same time, it's not sensationalised. The White House press conferences, apart from the scientists who are very good, the rest of it is a lot of spin, you know, I mean, basically you've got, you've got um, uh, the president and the vice president putting the best possible political spin on what's happened that day. Right. Uh, you know, and that's fine, but that's what they're doing. It's quite clear. Whereas Cuomo has a very different type of press conference and that's why it's become a, like a cult, a cult thing to watch in America, just to see there because that is the epicenter. And there you get, you feel like you get some real, uh, some accurate facts there that you might not get otherwise.
0: Yeah. Hey, um, we've got, so many questions asking the following, they are Christine Stewart no our relation, I imagine, um, 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 but also um, Jeremy Costello asked this, and that is, is there a chance that a candidate gets parachuted in at the last minute to replace Biden, that Cuomo, you yeah, know, this has been speculated about a little bit. Um,
1: yeah. No, I think, I think there's no chance that will happen. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, look, you know, a lot of people think, I mean, because a lot of people think, well, maybe Biden's a bit of a second best candidate, et cetera, et cetera, a bit too old, a bit too doddery, et cetera, a bit too boring, blah, blah, blah. But uh, but really, I mean, and Cuomo's there as a the man for the moment, but no, no, no. Cuomo's already said he won't do it. But uh, I don't think they'd do that. The Democrats would be crazy to do that. And there's no obvious candidate. I mean, you're going to suddenly get Oprah Winfrey or Michelle Obama suddenly putting their hands up.
0: Yeah. Hey, any... um. And again, uh, Francis Chauncey asked this, among many others, um, any speculation about a VP pick uh, for for Biden?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, uh, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar are the ones that people speak about the most. Uh, They're the most obvious ones. I mean, uh, he said he's going to choose a woman. Obviously, a minority woman would be something that a lot of people would want to have happen. I think Stacey Abrams, uh, the um, uh, the lady in Georgia, has said he should choose an African-American. Uh, she's African-American. Maybe she's putting her hands up for it. Uh, but, look, you know, he might choose someone um, from left field who we don't know much about, uh, even the governor of Michigan. Um, yeah, has been right. yeah. There's been speculation about. Uh, No-one knows. He's starting his... Uh, I think he's starting his... Um, Clearance or checking process or something early next month, but it'll be a huge decision. The only thing I would say is I think that he will have to get someone who is younger than 60 or 65. You know, you can't have let's talk about Elizabeth Warren, for example. But she's 70, a 70-year-old 70 and a 78-year-old, and I don't think you can have that. So I'm pretty sure it'll be a younger woman. Who knows who it'll be?
0: Yeah, uh, my money's on. I mean, just play to the play to that strength in um, you know the Michigan governor. Um, or Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, Trump almost won Minnesota in, in, mm. in 16. Yeah. Uh, but she would play, she would help you out uh, in some of those other States. He has said he wants to nominate a woman though. Right. He he wants a female running mate. He's kind of committed to that much at least. Right.
1: That's right. And, and the, and the Minnesota lady, uh, Amy, Amy Klobuchar, I was on the campaign trail with her quite a bit. She's very impressive. Uh, she's very impressive. She's, she's moderate. Um, they love her in the Midwest. They really do. I mean, she'd pull over not only Minnesota, but probably Wisconsin. I mean, so there's a lot of temptation to do that. There is also a lot of temptation because we saw, um, you know, uh, I think the last six candidates for the Democrats were all white uh, white. And so there's a fair bit of a, a pressure to to get an African American. So you know that his, Biden's going to have to just weigh this up. Thing is, Biden already gets the African American vote to a large degree. So I'm not sure he necessarily needs an African American VP. Yeah,
0: yeah, and with with um, Obama, backing um, him, and, and even Bill Clinton. Um, you know, I, I you know I think I think that's not again focus. The election's going to be decided by about. Half a million people. Um, yeah. pr- they're predominantly white people and um, in, in spread out across about four or five states. Yeah. That, that's right, Simon. So,
1: so, would you go for Kamala Harris, for example? She's a Californian. You know, yeah. a, a Californian. I, I have, uh, you know, you'd be more likely to go for Clover I would have thought, if you had a choice. But it could be, you know what America's like? You might get a, not a Sarah Palin, but someone completely from left field.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, let's. Um, back to these protests. Um, so BJ Jackson asked this, um, it was odd Cameron. I mean, there's different analysis. I mean, like so many things in America now, even the media analysis itself bifurcates ideologically along partisan lines. Um, No, they are ordinary good, good, you know, they're poor people sticking up for their economic self-interest. And on the other hand, you've got people saying, no, that's the same. Put up to it, ran a crowd. Uh, Freedom Works. You know the Mercer family, deep pockets that got the Tea Party up and rolling. It's sort of, you know, and, they're, and look at them—they're sort of reasonably well-dressed white people showing up in the in the Ford uh, F350, and you know, this is not a working-class uprising here. Um, um, I'm wondering, you know, the extent to which that's a bit of a ma- manufactured, or there actually really is some grassroots there, and. And moreover, just some reflection on that facet of America now, like who comes out to a protest, number one, but then in turn, the way the media reports on it, mm-hmm. like just, it's very tough, now, clean read on things.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and it's a fascinating thing. I've been looking at these protests quite a lot. And what you've got is, is actually everybody's right um, in, 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 in the sense that, that there are a lot of these protests are organized by, by conservative groups. Mm-hmm. But they also can find a lot of mums and dads, small business people, right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's not like it's not like a, a... I've been reading the Washington Post New York Times, the more left-wing media here, uh, have been very much constructing it as if, oh, my God, these people are just... It's just a... It's just a it's a trump campaign uh falsehood they're all just being sort of it's a campaign rally effectively that's not true you know uh but then you turn to fox news and they say oh they're all mums and dads and there's no one else you know and that's also not true i mean it's a perfect mixture of everything and you throw in a few sort of um semi crazies as well like nra really virulent nra people and uh and you've got a whole bunch of, of of other sort of uh uh, people as well. So it's, it's really a mixture of everything. But these are, I think it would be a mistake in Australia to think that these are just all orchestrated and fake. There is a genuine uh, movement here in America of people who want the economy open. These are people who've lost their jobs, lost their income, probably a bit frightened of the virus, but you know what, they're more frightened of bankruptcy. Uh, now, they're not, they're not the majority at this point. I mean, in fact, interesting polls in the last couple of days suggest that only they're only about Really, you know, a 20 twenty percent—that's the sort of that's the sort of number you're looking at. But it's a growing number, and the more that people don't have money, the more they're going to be willing to risk their life, or or, or or the balance will go in the economy. So I think you will see this group grow. I wouldn't underestimate them, and they're certainly not just a fake group of people.
0: Um, Cameron, we're getting starting to get towards the end of our time here. I'm just wondering if we could zoom out a little for a moment and ask some bigger picture questions here. Um, already some of your colleagues in the Australian press corps over there in in the US, and there's a lot of analysis starting to come out about, does this portend or accelerate American decline, um, particularly set against US-China strategic rivalry, um, that Americans themselves have been shocked by the inability of their institutions and political leaders to protect them um that this is a real kick in the guts if you will to american self-confidence number one but number two global perceptions of american power of american prestige of american capability um i your sense of that i i guess and B, the extent to which that will become perhaps an election narrative a theme um you know, if, if, is this what making America great looks like, for instance, if, if you were to, you know, throw it back against the president's slogan? Um, just if we could
1: get some. look. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very hard question because it really is unfolding as we speak, isn't it? It's very hard to, you know, it's, it's, it's a journey that's only a quarter or halfway through. We don't know how, how far it is through. Certainly, it's, this is a massive blow to American self-confidence. There's no doubt about that. I mean, people are truly shocked. People in this country are, I can't say how shocked they are. About what's happened to America, uh, you know, the overwhelming hospital—the the hospitals being overwhelmed, the, the bodies being put into refrigerator trucks in New York City, the mass grave in New—I mean, you know, people are just their jaws are on the ground. These are people I speak to within the administration, national security cabinet. They, they, you know, their private opinion is that oh my God, they're really, really shocked by what's happened. But you know, that's really more a function of America—it's it, its healthcare systems, the way it operates. Um, in so many ways, rather than the function of its foreign policy. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought, in fact, the outcome of this would be that uh, that you will see a more, um, an America that dwells so much more on China than it did previously. And already we were seeing a, a greater focus on China, but I, I think you will see an America that comes out of this that really sees China as, as, as if you like, a sort of a, a Cold War style adversary, in much more of a way than, than we ever saw before. Uh, so that's my, my initial thought.
0: Right, right. It's um, certainly a big theme for us over the balance of the year is, um, you know, particularly as a US study center here in Australia, um, what Australians are making of that facet of the way America has responded to it. And I think, you know, the words that are already being used in, in the United States, Cameron, you know, Self self reliance resilience economic sovereignty um, you know that with more concrete things like you know just how dependent you are on supply chains that originate in China or run through China um, you know that debate's happening certainly in, in the United States but also Australia um, and I guess the question for us is you know at the end of the day does this bring Australia and US closer together or sort of as a uh, serves to you know, I think there's a narrative in Australia about wow, we we really do need to take more care of ourselves. Um, yeah, um, it's,
1: interesting. it's interesting, Simon. Certainly, the people I speak to inside the administration here are very much of the opinion that Australia should decouple itself a lot more from China. Sure. Very, very critical of the of the. Um, obviously, they speak privately, but very critical of uh, of Australia's dependence on China uh, economically, and 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 just saying, well, he's he's the perfect example of of why Australia needs to spread its wings further. Um, I'd be,
0: you know, the, the, the confidence with which those conversations are happening though, Cameron, I'm wondering about um, um, is, is America, given everything that's happening to it at the moment, in a position to be dispensing that sort of advice about our reliance on China, Australia's reliance on China, you know, just, just a, an observation more than a question. Um, um, we've got time for, for just uh, one last question. And this comes from Freddie Sharp and, and it picks up, I think on, on where we've been Cameron. And that is, um, are Americans questioning about a reset of the economic system, you know, to rethink the relationship between citizens and the state, you know, permanently, there's going to be a bigger role for government or semi permanently. Is, is this, if, if it's, and Freddie hasn't, I'm, I'm elaborating a little on Freddie's question, but um, um, sort of a new deal moment where, there's this understanding that, you know, the government does have a bigger and legitimately has a bigger role to play in people's lives and in the economy.
1: Yeah, well, look, look certainly, obviously, that's the case. It's been a very bipartisan acceptance of this uh, two two trillion, soon to be three trillion dollar package. Uh, it's amazing, really. Under a Republican administration, Republican-controlled Republican Senate, Republican uh, president, this has actually been widely accepted. Uh, how long it lasts, I think, would be an, another another thing. I don't think it'll be a, a permanent thing. You know, um, I mean, the New Deal is the, the, the you know the closest. That, that Trump would probably call it socialism <laughs> before the pandemic, but now it's now it's uh, you know. Uh, This this rescue package is very bipartisan, even though they bicker about some aspects of of it. And so I think that it's just a temporary thing. I don't think there'll be a a, a major permanent reset. I think Republicans will go back to being Republicans, small government Republicans. But of course, that could take three or four years. You know, it's like in Australia, you're probably having the worst surplus surplus for many years. So, you know, government's going to be big in, in all these countries for quite a while. But I think ultimately, America will revert back to type.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I um look that's going to have to do it. Um uh it goes very fast. There's so much to talk about there. I hope we get to do it again, Cameron, um, if you don't mind. I'd I'd love cool. to come back um and check in as uh, as we get through this a little further and a little closer to the election. And wondering when you'll be back out on the road, uh perhaps visiting some of so the So am I.
1: sooner the better.
0: Well, stay safe. Um, both there in D.C. and, and if and when y- you get out on the road. Um, um, but but um, we rely, those of us in Australia, Cameron, particularly those, you know, we're a U.S. study center and we can't get to the U.S. right now to do our work. So uh, our, our, uh, our gratitude now and our, and our thanks to our friends who are willing to give up some time for some of these firsthand expert insights is all the more valuable under the circumstances. So I hope we get to do it again. Um, but thank you for this morning, at least in the first instance, Cameron. Thanks so much. I'd be happy to, thanks thanks, Simon. Thanks for everyone, cheers. And thank you everybody. Um, we've got plenty more where that came from. Um, please check our website. Uh, we're, we're teeing these up, about two a week, but please get on the website. Um, we've got a great conversation coming up um, on, on, um, on some of the stuff we talked about today. Um, some of this work on um, uh, tracking the way that the US is exposed to foreign interference in social media channels. That'll be a conversation um, with some, uh, a project run by the German Marshall Fund, uh, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, beginning a little bit of press lately about their efforts for sort of calling out, frankly, in, for the most part, Chinese uh, efforts uh, to be active in social media channels in the US. Uh, we'll be talking to those people from that project. Uh, next week or so and plenty more Uh, thank you good evening Cameron thanks a lot